for you once again uh, the text this evening from Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the latter half of that chapter. Those of you who are with us this morning, uh, we will know that we spent some time in verses 1 to 9, and so we'll pick up with verse 10 this evening. Now, if you were here this morning, or even if you weren't, but just listened to the scripture reading a few moments ago, you will know that from the very beginning of chapter 2 of Hebrews, we were exhorted to pay more careful attention to Jesus. And in verses 10 to 18, we're going to do just that. We are going to look much more carefully at aspects of who Jesus is as our mediator Verse 10 begins with an extraordinary statement. Have a look. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. What is this telling us about the Lord Jesus? To what about Jesus is this directing our attention here in verse 10? Well, among other things, and we will return to several other things, we're told this. We're told that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Do you see that in verse 10? Jesus was made perfect. Now, you might be thinking, uh, like I thought when I read this, how can that be? How is that possible? How is it possible that Jesus can be made perfect Wasn't Jesus already perfect? Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's very God of very God in the formulation of the ancient creed based upon the scriptures. How can this Jesus, God himself, ever be made perfect when he was already divine? Wasn't he already perfect? Well, yes, in in several senses that is true to say that Jesus was already perfect even before he became perfect a man. Jesus was divine. He was God. He was perfect in all his ways. Even uh, having become a man, in fact, Jesus was perfect in the sense that he was sinless. Isn't that true? Hebrews goes on to remind us of that uh, in chapter 4, verse 15. It's made crystal clear that Jesus was made like us in every way and yet without sin. So Jesus was sinless. Jesus was divine. That can't be what the author means here in verse 10 when he tells us that Jesus was made perfect. So what does he mean? Well, look closely again at how he phrases it. Should make the author of their salvation perfect. How? By what means? Through suffering. That's the key phrase here. Through suffering. <clears throat> Verse 10 tells us that Jesus, in taking on our human nature, and especially as he suffered as a man, was made perfect. That is, he was perfectly fit for purpose. He was perfectly equipped for that which he came to accomplish. That's the kind of perfection that Hebrews 2 is directing our attention to as we think of Jesus. Well, maybe some of you, like uh, my boys and myself, enjoy watching Bear Grylls once in a while as he grapples with uh, wild animals, wild food uh, situations in the wild. And a while back, someone gave me his uh, biography, 
Mud, Sweat, and Tears, I think it's called. And in that story of his early life, uh, Bear tells the story of his time going through the selection process, the SAS selection process. Uh, You might be familiar with what that entails, going into the mountains in Wales, the Brecon Beacons, and being out there for three weeks in the first phase, having to carry each day a heavier and heavier load on one's back as you are timed from checkpoint to checkpoint, having to find your way in the wild, no matter if it's raining, no matter if it's snowing, no matter if it's blazing sun beating down, no matter if it's dark and cold and wet and you've sprained your ankle, you still have to make it through if you want to be selected for the special services. So Bear tells his story about this grueling selection process and why, we might ask, is selection so grueling? Why so much physical and mental suffering that these would-be soldiers are put through. Well, the goal, of course, is to weed out those who are not fit for purpose so that at the end of the selection, the ones who are still standing, the ones who cross that line within time, are the most fit for purpose in every way, physically, mentally, emotionally. They have what it takes to accomplish the missions on which the British government will send them. That's what selection is all about. And that's the kind of fitness for purpose that our text is talking about here this evening. There was something about suffering, about the grueling nature of Jesus' suffering in his humanity that was critical to his mission. Look ahead to the end of this text at the end of chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, gives us a bit of a preview, doesn't it, of the payoff of this selection process, if you will, this perfection process for Jesus. What does it say in verse 17? For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That is the payoff of the selection process through which Jesus went when he assumed our humanity. Do you see the multiple purposes laid out in those verses? Verse 17, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Verse 17, that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. Verse 18, so that he is able to tempt, rather to help those who are being tempted. Those are the purposes, that's the mission for which Jesus was sent. And why he had to undergo the, the selection process of suffering which he underwent. Well, let's review very quickly here for just a moment. In chapters 1 and 2, we'll remember that Jesus was held out to us, first of all, as the Son the one in whom God has spoken. He is the prophet through whom God speaks definitively. But not only that, he's also the king. Because after making purification for sins, after having been raised from the dead, he ascends on high, he sits down on the throne in heaven. He's also a king. Jesus is prophet. Jesus is king. And here at the end of chapter 2, for the first time in Hebrews... Jesus is called a great high priest. 
prophet, priest, and king is the usual order we think of these offices, so-called, of Jesus. And the one concept in Scripture, in fact, the concept in Hebrews that binds those aspects of Jesus together for us is that of covenant mediator. What does it mean to say that Jesus is our mediator? It means that he is these three things. He is our prophet, the one who speaks God's words to us. He is our king, the one who rules for us from heaven. And he is our great high priest, a merciful and a faithful high priest. So that by the time we reach chapter 9, verse 15 in Hebrews, we are told that Jesus is indeed the mediator of a new covenant. That is beginning to come into focus for us here already in the first two chapters of Hebrews. Although the word is not there, Jesus is not yet called a mediator, he will be. And that's the concept that we want to have in our minds that binds these various aspects of Jesus' person and work for us together. Jesus is a mediator. The 17th century Puritan Theologian and pastor John Owen loved the book of Hebrews. In fact, he loved it so much that he wrote a commentary on it that takes up seven volumes. Uh, You might dig into that at some point, uh, but you'll be forgiven for not reading it from start to finish. I think very few do so. But although those hundreds of pages across seven volumes are filled with brilliant insights into what this letter stroke sermon is telling us, What stands out as a repeated theme in Owen's treatment of Hebrews is the beholding of Jesus as our mediator, being captivated by the grace and the glory of Jesus Christ as the new covenant mediator. John Owen put his finger on the pulse of the book of Hebrews when he identified covenant mediator as that which holds out Jesus to us most fully in his grace and glory. And so this evening, in verses 10 to 18, we want to understand more about Jesus, our mediator. And particularly, we want to understand how it is that he, through suffering and through death, is made perfect and able to become a high priest for us. In commenting on chapter 2, Owen insisted that we must not allow ourselves to be content with a vague notion of Jesus. What is your notion of Jesus? When you are asked, perhaps by a friend, a co-worker, a family member, to explain who Jesus is, who is this Jesus, what comes to mind for you? What would you say? How would you explain who it is that Jesus is as our Savior, the Son of God, the Mediator? Do you know Jesus Already, Do you know him by faith? Do you trust Jesus? Is he your savior this evening? Well, what do you know of him in those respects? Do you believe in him as the Messiah, as the Christ? Well, what's the content of your belief in Jesus as the Christ? Do you have an intellectual grasp, to a certain degree at least, of Jesus' mission his ministry, his work that he's accomplished? Do you have a grasp in your heart of these things as well? Has it made its way from your head to your heart so that you love Jesus more because of who he is and what he's done for you? 
Owen insists that especially here, especially in Hebrews, we must not content ourselves with what we already know about Jesus, with what we already love about Jesus. We must press on. We must, in the words of verse 1, pay more careful attention to Jesus. And we do so as to Jesus, our mediator. So Hebrews 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 10 to 18, takes us right to the heart, right to the heart of the person and the offices of Jesus, holding these out for us to grasp. And in this passage, we discover what it is that enables Jesus to become the author. Do you see that title in verse 10? He's the author of our faith. Other translations you might be using might have a different word translating the original. Perhaps you have founder of our faith or trailblazer or originator. All of those words capture the fullness of this term. What it is that Jesus became for you by means of his suffering and death. So we're going to sum up our passage like this this evening. Then we'll walk through the verses briefly and apply them before we finish. Here's the summary. Jesus, our mediator, is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Jesus, our mediator, is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We'll look at the text in three sections as I think it unfolds itself in these sections. First, verses 10 to 13. We'll have a look at the connection that is established by our mediator. The connection that our mediator establishes, verses 10 to 13. Then verses 14 to 16, the mission that was undertaken by our mediator. And finally, verses 17 to 18, the unique position of our mediator. Jesus is our mediator and he's not ashamed, as we'll see, to call us, to call you brother or sister. Let's look at verses 10 to 13 first. And here we want to understand the connection established by Jesus as our mediator. And in a word, brothers and sisters, the connection is just this. It is a covenant bond of love. A covenant bond of love that Jesus establishes between himself and all of his people when he undertakes his mission. When he becomes man, suffers and dies for us. He establishes the connection of a covenant bond. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 tells us it was fitting what Jesus did, what God did to Jesus, the Son, in his incarnation, in his life, in his crucifixion and resurrection. What God did was fitting. It was appropriate. It was proper. And then in verse 17, he had to be made like Do you see the language of necessity here? The language of the necessary logic of redemption, if you will. This is how it had to be. This is how it had to be because this is how God designed it to be. Anselm uh, goes back a little further than John Owen, whom we just mentioned. Anselm, a medieval theologian, who wrote a book in Latin entitled Cur Deus Homo, which translated, I'm told, means, why did God become a man? Why did Jesus become a man? Isn't that the question that this text is answering? Why did Jesus become a man? That's the question Anselm wanted to know. It's the question that the author of Hebrews wants us 
to be able to answer. And here's the answer. He became a man to bind himself so closely to his people that whatever is true of Jesus will also be true of his people. Whatever is true of him will also be true of us. That's the reason why Jesus took on flesh and became a man. That's what it means that Jesus, through his suffering and death, verse 10, became the author or originator of our faith. Later in chapter 12, verse 2 of Hebrews, which we also heard this morning, Jesus is given this title again when we read, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Do you see the connections between chapter 2 and chapter 12? If you're not able to read right through Hebrews, at least read these two chapters side by side. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Who is Jesus? The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3 goes on to tell us why. Why is this so important to consider Jesus as the author of our faith? Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. Here's the reason. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do you find yourself weary? Do you find yourself tempted to lose heart in the Christian life? Day by day, as you go to work, as you do your tasks, as you try to be faithful in all the little things, as you mess up again and again, as you sin, as you break relationships with those around you and have to ask forgiveness, do you find that you grow weary Do you find that you lose heart? Do you find that you're weary as you realize that we're surrounded by a culture, that we live in a world which disregards the truth of God utterly, which disregards Jesus utterly, which, even worse, heaps shame and scorn upon Jesus and those who would follow him, which says that the law that God gives his people is not good, is not holy, is not beautiful, but is ridiculous, is outmoded, is oppressive. Do you find yourself growing weary and losing heart? Well, if you do, Hebrews tells you, you must fix your eyes, the eyes of your faith, on Jesus, the author, the originator, the founder of your salvation. Because he knows what suffering is like. He knows what opposition is like. He has led the way. He has blazed the trail. That is why that is a wonderful translation, actually, of this term, trailblazer. He has gone that way before us. And he is pulling us along in his wake. So you fix your eyes on him and you follow him and you disregard all of the opposition and all of the discouragement around you, fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's what Hebrews 2, set side by side with Hebrews 12, urges us to do. And we're able to do so wonderfully because Jesus has established this connection between himself and us. It's a connection that's a bit like, well, I don't know if you've ever read about the story of Shackleton and his adventure, uh, Amazing story, unbelievable story, especially if you yourself have ever spent any time 
hiking or on an expedition uh, in very hostile territory, walking over glaciers especially. I don't know if any of you have ever done that. I lived for Alaska in a, for a few summers, and uh, it wasn't winter, thank the Lord, but I know what those crevasses are like. Maybe you do as well. What is it in an expedition that keeps the team together? It all depends on whom, that leader to whom everyone is roped, so that if one person in the line falls through the ice into a crevasse, they are not lost utterly. They're pulled to safety because the rope is fixed to that one in the lead who's picking his way carefully across the glacier field. That's the image for us this evening of Jesus as the one who leads the way. And we are roped to him, connected to him by faith, but also by the connection that he himself has established with us. Because he did not consider it below him, brothers and sisters, to lower himself from heaven to become a man for you. He did not consider it below him to suffer in a body just like you have. And you think about the ailments that beset you, if you're anything like me, it is not always a pleasant thing to wake up in the morning and to feel your body. And I am told that that just gets worse with age. But that's the body that Jesus had. He had a real human body. He really suffered in that body. It was really that body that was nailed to a cross. And as he did all of that, he established a connection with us in our humanity so that where he goes, we might follow if we trust in him. Verse 11 tells us more about this covenant bond. It tells us, as we see there, that both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. This is a difficult verse in the original. You'll find translations translating it in a variety of ways, but they all agree on this. What it's telling us is that the one who sanctifies or makes holy is joined inextricably to those whom he sanctifies, those whom he makes holy. There is a nexus, a knot, a bond that holds Jesus and his people together. And it will not, it cannot ever break or be broken asunder. That is the bond which Jesus has established that links us to him. And it's a bond which has its origins wonderfully in the eternal plan of our God for our redemption. Because even before Jesus took on humanity, he had agreed with the Father to do all it would take, all it would take to save his people. He said yes to the Father. And with that yes, he secured our redemption and bound us to himself out of love. And that is why, at the end of verse 11, he is not ashamed, our text tells us, to call us what? What does Jesus call you if you trust in him, if you are one of his? What does he call you? He calls you a brother. And you've probably heard it before, but this word can be translated equally sibling. So it's brother, sister, sibling. Jesus calls you his own family. That is the bond which Jesus has made, connecting us to himself. The covenant bond established by our mediator, brothers and sisters, that's the language we use because scripture uses it, is a familial bond. 
We are family, a new family. And perhaps you are like me, finding yourself here in London, far from family. Maybe your parents, your extended family, your grandparents, those that you love, are far from you. And you find yourself sometimes actually rather alone here in this huge city. And yet you come, and I hope as you come, you find you find one of the wonderful benefits of Jesus' work. Because in calling us brothers and sisters, he not only connects us to himself, he connects us to one another. So that we are a new family. As we gather here together in the assembly of the gathered church, we are brothers and sisters because our elder brother has bound us to himself. That's the connection that our mediator establishes. And verses 12 and 13, what do they do? They take three Old Testament texts. We heard two of them read uh, earlier. Psalm 22, 22, and then Isaiah uh, 8, uh, uh, verse 17 and verse 18. And it applies each of those texts to Jesus. And it does so to drive home this point even more securely. That Jesus has confirmed that we are truly his brothers and sisters. Psalm 22, we sang some of that before. Most often in the Gospels, we're used to this psalm being taken by Jesus upon his lips when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hanging there on the cross. Why do you think the author of Hebrews goes to that psalm? It's a psalm of great suffering. The suffering that Jesus underwent for you, for me. And yet, the author of Hebrews picks verse 22 to cite. Verse 22 is is the pivot point in that psalm. Did you hear it as Gabriel read the psalm earlier, as we sang it earlier, how it pivots from the misery of suffering that Jesus experienced on the cross to the deliverance that God worked for him in raising him from the dead. So that verse 22 is Jesus now having been delivered from death, saying, I will declare your name to my brothers and my sisters. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. Jesus here with us this evening by his Spirit declaring God's name to us as we hear his word, singing praises with us as we sing to the glory of God. That's our elder brother leading us even in worship this evening. That is the connection we have with our mediator. Isaiah 8, verses 17 and 18. Look at these beautiful citations the author has chosen. Do you see the emphasis I will put my trust in him. Isaiah, in the midst of persecution in the time of Ahaz, in chapter 7 and 8 of Isaiah, go back and read them if you can. And in the midst of all of that pressure, all of that persecution, what does Isaiah the prophet say? And now Jesus takes on his own lips. He says, I will put my trust in him. No matter what surrounds me, my trust is in him. And then he says, here I am with the children you've given me. Not just literal children, but the disciples, those faithful, those trusting in Yahweh, even then, in the time of Ahaz, who gathered around Isaiah and were faithfully looking to the Lord to deliver them. Now those words are taken by the resurrected Jesus on his own lips and declared to us, because we are his children, not only his brothers and sisters, we are his disciples, his children, his people gathered together, and we too have to trust in the Lord, just as he did in the days of his suffering. That's the connection Jesus establishes for us 
with himself. Verses 14 to 16, more quickly, we want to look at the mission undertaken by our mediator. It's a mission of deliverance. A mission of deliverance. Look, verse 14, the language Jesus shares in our human nature and our suffering so that he might, verse 14, destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and further, verse 15, that he might set us free. Set us free from the fear of death. Deliver us from the fear of judgment and death because of our sins, because of our mortality and the curse of sin. A long time ago now, I suppose, uh, many of you might have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, uh, this reenactment of the story of D-Day, the beaches of Normandy, a bit of a blockbuster portrayal, taking some liberties, no doubt, but a powerful depiction of that day in World War II. And uh, in reading about the making of the movie, uh, I I found that Tom Hanks, who was one of the stars, of course, uh, had the idea, along with the directors, that before they went into filming, he and the other uh, cast members needed to experience, he thought, what it would really be like, as close as possible, under uh, conditions of battle. And so he agreed, Tom Hanks, Matt Damon, all the rest, to subject themselves to week after week of bombardment, simulated bombardment. And evidently, after about a week of this, several of the cast members said, forget this. And they were ready to chuck it all in and, and walk off the set because it was, it was absolutely beating them down. The pressure of constant sound, artillery strafing, bombs going off, all of the simulation. Of course, it's just a simulation. And yet, it was It was driving them into the ground. It was destroying them. And so evidently Tom Hanks had to uh, give them a piece of his mind and call the younger actors back to the set so that they could truly identify as closely as possible with those soldiers whom they were about to depict on screen. He wanted to ensure as much as possible that they had a true solidarity of experience, that they understood as much as possible what it was really like for them. Well, that's what Jesus does as well. Only it's not a simulated solidarity. It is a true solidarity. He takes upon himself our very flesh and blood, we're told in verse 14. He shares in our humanity. He even shares in that which faces all of us. He shared in death. Complete and utter solidarity. That was the mission undertaken by Jesus in order that he might save us. Jesus was not merely acting. He did not just seem to be human. He really was human. He really did die. He didn't just seem to have died on the cross, as according to some conspiracy theories that you'll still read even today. Jesus suffered, died, was buried. But the third day, he rose again. Mission accomplished. And because that mission he undertook was accomplished, he was able to bring us with him out of the shadow of the valley of the fear of death, out of the threat of judgment. Well, let's have a look uh, as we move on to the end here, verses 17 and 18. We've seen the connection our mediator establishes with us. We've seen the mission that he undertook on our behalf. And finally, we want to look at the unique position of our mediator. And that position is simply this, that he became a great, merciful 
faithful high priest for us. Verse 17, he identified with us in every respect, we are told. Do you see how this passage is piling on the language of every respect, in every way, our flesh and blood, just like us? Hebrews 2 goes to great lengths to drive home the point. Jesus knows what it's like to live this human life. In fact, he knows even even better than we do what it's like to go through temptation, which is the focus of these verses, is it not, in 17 and 18? Because Jesus endured temptation right to the end. We, on the other hand, usually cave in very early in the process of temptation, don't we? We're faced with temptation. We might resist. We might try. We might struggle. Sometimes, praise God, we're successful. But more often than not, we fail. Jesus never failed. He knew the intensity of temptation, the intensity of suffering. In fact, the two combined, the temptation there as he hung on the cross, suffering in his body, in his spirit, to call in the artillery of heaven, to jump down off that cross. And yet he persevered. He persevered in his mission. Utterly to the very end, so that in every respect he was faithful. And that enables him to, uh, to sit now in this unique position of a merciful and faithful high priest, we're told in verse 17. And by the way, if you go on reading chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews, you'll realize that these are two of those key words. We talked several months ago, and you might not remember, that the writer to Hebrews likes to use those little knitting words, those little crochet-type words. So at the end of sections, he'll knit this together and, and give you the clue to what's coming in the next section. Well, these two words are those stitches that signal what's coming. Jesus, we're told, is a merciful and faithful high priest. And if you swing those round, you've got chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 3 tells us how Jesus was faithful and still is a faithful high priest over the house of God. Chapter 4 and following tells us how merciful he is. But you'll have to read on. We can't go there this evening. Verse 17 also tells us a wonderful, wonderful benefit of our mediator as our high priest, that he was able to work propitiation or atonement, as some of your translations will have. That is, he was able to wipe out our sins, to cover over our sins with his own blood so that we might enter God's presence with clean consciences. What a great privilege to draw near to God with a clean conscience. No matter what we've done, no matter how awful we have been, no matter who we know ourselves to be in the deep darkness of our hearts, Jesus makes atonement. Jesus' own blood covers all of that sin, wipes it clean away, so that we can come into the very presence of God and be welcomed by our Father as his sons and daughters. That is what it means for us to have Jesus as our high priest. Jesus is a mediator who is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. I hope that you'll remember that as our mediator, Jesus is a prophet, he's a king, but especially here in chapter 2, he is a merciful and faithful high priest, one who identified with you so closely 
that he knows anything you will ever experience. And he loves you, and he is at work on your behalf, serving you as your great high priest, even this evening. Jesus, our mediator, is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Let's pray.